Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode of Building to Zero, I am joined by architect, urban designer, and educator, and TED resident, Stefan Al. We discuss how cities are cracking down on carbon, the lasting impacts of the pandemic, and the future of building materials. Enjoy the conversation. Stefan, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from today? Yeah, Brendan, thanks uh, very much. Um, I'm currently in New York. Oh, nice. We, we must be neighbors. I'm in New York, too. Can you start maybe by just giving people your background and, and kind of the arc of your career as an architect and specifically, you know, your interest and your focus in sustainable design? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I'm actually originally from the Netherlands. Um, I went to uh, architecture school in Delft. And there were two events that really changed my trajectory. The first is uh, I worked in a very small team on what was then the competition for the world's tallest tower, the Canton Tower in Guangzhou, the south, the south of China. Uh, and we ended up winning that competition to our own surprise and, and building the tower. But it kind of expanded my interest from just kind of you know individual buildings to more larger scale projects and, and larger scale infrastructure. And then the second event was, uh, I actually studied abroad in Barcelona. So for, for those of you know you who've been there, it, for me, it was just an eye opener of you know what cities can do to reinvent themselves. So Barcelona up until Franco, who was the, the nationalist dictator, uh, was not a very pleasant city. It was very kind of industrialized. And then after he left, architects, they had schemed for years to upgrade the city, build a series of public plazas. They created this massive waterfront. It was all in the vein of the Olympics, but the real purpose was to just create a, a fantastic city. Being there and seeing how people kind of enjoy the public space, how people take, you know, the public transit, which was really good, uh, and how people just, you know, enjoy life there and how it became really a magnet for tourists as well. This made me aware of kind of the power of urban design and how cities can reinvent themselves. So with that, I decided to do a, a PhD in city planning at UC Berkeley. And I started to study kind of cities around the world and, and how they could positively reinvent themselves through design. Uh, and I was really inspired by that. And around that time, the word kind of sustainability became more, more dominant in a lot of the, the research I was reading and city planning departments, architects, they started to take this up. Um, and I, I became a professor, kind of was very fortunate to study uh, cities around the world. And so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professor, I'm also an author, I published several books. But in, in addition to that, I, I still practice on kind of projects that are really focusing on ur urban design and sustainability. Got it. And I guess, you know, it, it's, it's a very broad term. And I think it's something that, you mm -hmm. know, is used a lot. But I'd be really curious, as, you know, an academic, yeah. how do you define sustainable building design? And how do you view that as kind of separate and discrete from sustainable city design? And how are they, how are they the same? How yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. Well, I think you have different opportunities for each of those, right? So when it comes to buildings, 
I mean, most of the carbon, if, if we're talking about uh, reducing carbon in, in terms of uh, sustainability, obviously we can look at it much more broader and look at other things too, like you know, water, for instance. But in terms of carbon, I would say the two big buckets, and I'm sure you're aware of them, is kind of the operational carbon. So in the United States, the biggest part of that is cooling, actually, and, and it overtook heating uh, because of you know uh, temperature rising. So heating, cooling, uh, lighting, uh, in big buildings, elevators, right? But then the other big bucket uh, is the embodied carbon. I think that's where uh, a lot of kind of missed opportunities lie. It's something that we do not regulate in the United States. Actually, very few places regulate the embodied carbon, right? The energy code uh, only is designed to reduce the operational carbon, and it does so indirectly, right? Through, through specifying better performing envelopes or roofs, right? Or systems. But I think the real skeleton in the closet, something that we haven't really focused on, is the embodied carbon, so all the energy that is, sits in in the buildings. Uh, and I think that is a, a question of materials, you know, life cycle, and and that is a much harder question I think to solve for us right now. And and there's virtually no regulation uh, about that. It's changing though. Um, I think many cities around the world are thinking about that. Particularly the EU, they have this kind of circular economy framework that now some cities are implementing, like London. London and Paris, they're going to mandate life cycle assessments before projects. But I think and in terms that, of buildings. And can I ask, is that for new construction? Because one of the questions I, I obviously have is, you know, we're, mm. we're both in New York and obviously a city like yeah. London as well, you're dealing with a yeah. lot of pre-war buildings and buildings yeah. are yeah. liquid assets, they trade hands. So I yeah. imagine that the, the variance in terms of embodied carbon probably between buildings, between say the most yeah. efficient building from that perspective and least efficient building is, yeah. is actually probably even wider than operational carbon. And so yeah. how do you deal yeah. with those legacy issues? Meaning the building I'm sitting in right now, the person ultimately responsible for building such yeah. a high embodied carbon asset is, is no yeah. longer accountable. So how, how yeah. do you deal with that from a regulatory perspective? Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a good point. And, you know, I, th I think th there's going to be a question around, you know, what do you do with alterations, right? And to and at what point does an alteration need to be subjected to some life cycle assessment? So, yeah, I think that's a good point. I think right now, there are all the sample projects I've seen, they really focus on kind of new construction. So design for deconstruction, I, I don't know if you, you see, or design for disassembly, a really interesting trend. And there's a couple what of pavilion projects. What pro is that? Can you, can you explain that for people? Yeah, it's 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 designing a building with the end of life in mind, meaning, you know, normally it's a very linear process, right? We have our relationship with our suppliers. They bring up, you know, uh, construction materials on, on the job site. It, it, it's being put together. And then 50 years down the line, all of this is demolished, right? So a very linear process. But what if instead of kind of waste at the end of life of a building, that becomes kind of a resource? So there's, there's various pilot projects that have been commissioned to kind of change that and make it more circular. So just to name a couple of initiatives, uh, one is like buyback schemes, right? In which suppliers, they provide you with the material, but then they offer to buy it back at the end of the building's life. But that means that has a lot of consequences, right? When when suppliers do that, that means that, you know, first of all, the material needs to be in a good state. So you can't just have, uh, let's say, a steel beam welded to another steel beam, or you can't just have a, a wood beam that's drilled through, right? So it's, it's very 
different types of connections that would need to be created for this reuse of materials. The other piece is that there needs to be some material database that kind of scans. So, so you have a QR code on each material so you can scan it. And afterwards, 50 years down the line, people know exactly, oh, uh, this is this uh, material from this supplier. Let's sell it back to them or, or sell it to some other vendor that may be interested in this. It's interesting. So effectively, the, you know, the component parts of a building need to be modularized in, you know, as, as reusable a fashion as possible. Mm -hmm. And you structure these kind of forward buyback rights. But one of the questions that, that kind of begs for me is like, well, what if the suppliers aren't around? Meaning is, is, is yeah. it a contract in its own right that's kind of yeah. freely tradable to ensure that there's some counterparty on yeah. the other end when that building yeah. is being decommissioned? Yeah, no, it, it's 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 a good question, right? So there's lots of risk there, and yeah, they haven't really worked it up, worked this out yet. I've only seen this being implemented at temporary kind of demonstration projects. So they create pavilions that are up for a couple of weeks, and then they decommission them. So yeah, I mean, it it still needs to be uh, for for this to really kind of scale up to the actual real estate industry. I think there's lots of hurdles to overcome, but we're seeing, I mean, corporations already doing this, Ikea, for instance, right? They have the furniture buyback scheme. So it's it's definitely happening and you're right. I mean, there's a lot of questions that need to be ironed out, but yeah, I do think it is a, it is a big opportunity. The other thing that we're seeing across cities is how kind of some governments, so for instance, the Netherlands, where I'm from, they're commissioning kind of databases in which they're going to create inventories of all existing buildings and see what materials are there. And then they match them up with new construction. So they realize that there's a certain area in the city in which some buildings will probably get demolished and they would kind of link that development to a potential new construction development. So that, you know, there, there is kind of a growing interest and in, in movement, but yeah, it is still in its infancy. And it's, it's probably much harder to do than all the kind of operational carbon that we focused on uh, so much and that we're regulating. I think the embodied carbon question is really uh, much harder. And the expectation is by 2050. So right now, if you look at the proportion of operational carbon versus embodied carbon, I would say it's about two and a half times more operational carbon right but because the efficiency of our buildings is improving because our our energy systems becoming more renewable uh, we're expecting that by 2050 uh, it will be one-to-one -one ratio operational versus embodied carbon so so i think you know the market will generally move towards embodied carbon more and more uh, because it's, the opportunity is getting larger. And to what extent does that depend on the replacement cycle? Meaning, you know, the, the mm -hmm. replacement cycle for assets. So a mm -hmm. building built before sustainability was a thing and a building built yeah. recently, obviously look yeah. and operate and are, you know, comprised yeah. of materials that are quite different, which I, I want to get your thoughts on separately. But does that disadvantage economies that, you know, have an older building stock and then therefore might have a slower rate of replacement on new assets? Yeah. No, that's a good question because, I mean, if you have an older building, that means that you can amortize the embodied carbon over a longer period of time, right? So in a way, that would mean that it's more sustainable to have a building last longer, right? If you look at the Pantheon in Rome, right, uh, that's been around for 2,000 years, uh, maybe not the most efficient form of concrete. Uh, it was not reinforced, but actually because it wasn't reinforced, it doesn't corrode from the inside. So it has a much longer uh, lifespan. But I think, yeah, it, it's a good question. There's this going to be a... A negotiation, right, between building owners and uh, regulators, just like with Local Law 97 in New York City. So, for listeners that are not aware of that, it's a it's kind of a groundbreaking law that is 
is not regulating carbon indirectly through the energy code, meaning you need to have a certain type of facade or uh, you cannot have any energy leakage. It's actually measuring the carbon directly and it's putting a cap on carbon use per building. But this is this law that's actually going to create fines for buildings is already creating this whole kind of recladding industry in New York City, right? The existing buildings who will not be able to satisfy uh, those regulations are upgrading their facades. So, you know, I think very similar to, to New York when it comes to embodied carbon, there will be, uh, I think, these very nuanced regulations that will start to, you know, change the way in which buildings are, are built and also maintained. And, and I'm curious to get your perspective just on, you know, the regulatory environment. Obviously, Europe has kind of been at the vanguard of sustainability yeah. for quite some time. Yeah. New York's law, I agree with you, is very pioneering in, in the U.S. in, in, in tax. Yeah. But it, the, the way I kind of think about it simplistically is that regulators like to tax what they can measure, right? Like mm -hmm. regulators mm -hmm. like to tax things they can measure, like income. Yeah. And yeah. now you can tax, you can measure carbon, therefore you, you can tax it. It also yeah. have to align with a greener policy agenda that yeah. many local politicians have. Do you anticipate that what we saw in New York is going to cascade to most mm. of the U.S. over time? And how does that intersect with, you know, federal policy? Meaning like mm -hmm. Biden obviously put the U.S. back in the Paris Agreement. How does that intersect with it? And, and what does that mean long term? Because I actually think the real estate industry hasn't metabolized mm. this reality of yeah. taxes are yeah. near certainty over the next decade. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, there's there's several uh, regulatory aspects at play. First is local law 97, which is a very unusual law, right? Because it actually finds buildings that do not comply. And it, it, it doesn't really directly deal with the building, but, but directly deals with the carbon, right? And I think that is is really quite a kind of aggressive law, right? And for progressive cities like New York that really see themselves as the forefront of sustainability, I think it, it this will be a law that will be repeated. Will this kind of have wider impacts beyond, let's say, the, the big metro areas? Uh, that remains to be seen. But we have another mechanism that also kind of sets the operational carbon or improves the operational carbon, which is the energy code, right? And every couple of years, the energy go code gets stricter and then it gets adopted by local municipalities. So I think, you know, on, on the top hand, you have, you know, the local laws 97 that really cap carbon. Uh, on the other hand, you have uh, the energy code that kind of cut the limit the downside, the, the worst building that you could create, right? Uh, and that standard is gradually getting higher. So I think in big metro areas, that big law, that capping carbon law will be more influential. But I think in the smaller kind of suburban or rural communities, I think those uh, energy codes will, will do the job. Now, when it comes to embodied carbon, we're still very far away. So I, I don't see this happening anytime soon in the US, but it is be happening in Europe, right? So cities are already creating the framework in which they can apply uh, life cycle assessments. But when is it going to be law and really implemented? I'm not sure. Last time I checked, they were still debating about it, but I, I think they're going to come. Uh, and then it, it, it's probably a matter of time they're going to come to the US too. And, you know, when you think about obviously embodied carbon, new building materials are hold mm -hmm. a lot of promise, obviously, in, in yeah. real estate owners to efficiently, you know, comply with the, these new standards. Which of those materials kind of excites you the most? Obviously, I'm sure you, mm -hmm. you look at a lot of it and think about it very holistically, but which yeah. of these technologies and new materials are you most optimistic about? So I've worked with several of them and, and probably the one that most of the industry is excited about is mass timber. 
right? Which is a form of engineered uh, timber. So there's there's various versions of that that probably pe most people refer to CLT or cross laminated timber, which takes advantage of the kind of, if you look at lumber, it is really stronger along one direction. So lumber comes from a tree. Trees are really good at standing up, right? But if you look at a piece of lumber, you touch it from the side, it's, it's not that strong, uh, perpendicular to the rings. So cross laminated timber takes advantage of that by having uh, different pieces of lumber at 90 degree angles. So you have kind of a strong side on, on the horizontal and also a strong side that's rotated along the vertical. So that is a, a great material. I think the embodied carbon is much lower. And not only that, it has another advantage, which is that mass timber is a carbon sink, not a carbon source. As long as forests are sustainably managed for every tree that is cut and, and ends up in a building, that tree has in its lifetime absorbed carbon from the atmosphere and that carbon is now stored in a building, right? So as long as a new tree is planted, that's a very positive thing. Now, most people think about, oh, mass timber or, or lumber or wood, it's going to create a fire hazard. So mass timber actually performs quite well under fire. It burns quite slowly because it creates a char, which is a very kind of dense layer of carbon that blocks any oxygen from going through and really kind of slows the, the fire down to the extent that people can safely leave the structure. Uh, so recently, the International Building Code has allowed structures out of mass timber. They used to be in category four, meaning it can only get up to five, six stories. Now they can get up to 18 stories. So we're already seeing kind of, well, in New York terms, that's a mid-rise, right? It's not quite a high rise, but but we're seeing uh, several of these across the world. Uh, so it's really exciting. And where do you uh, think so that is, just out of curiosity, like 18 stories today, are, are we looking at a future you think where cross-laminated timber buildings mm -hmm. are 50-story buildings? Is, is that actually physically viable? Yeah, no, uh, at this moment, we don't think so. There's been a couple kind of speculative projects. There was one in, in, in Tokyo by, a, I think it was a lumber company that drew up this tower that was like 900 feet tall. We're, we're not there yet, but there's a couple of things that we can do to get taller. There's one tower in Neostormit, I'm probably not pronouncing correctly, in Scandinavia, but that actually is about you know, 15, 18 stories tall. And the upper stories are uh, a mass timber concrete hybrid floor. So it's a little st stronger when it's hybrid. The other thing that we're seeing, uh, and this was a, a project that didn't go through, it was a project at Sidewalk Labs. They, they planned in Toronto. That, so that project was canceled, but they did engineer a 30-story mass timber tower with on the top, it had a tuned mass damper you probably know, which is kind of a counterweight to uh, take out the lateral shake or the wind forces out of the building. So when you have things like that, you can actually build higher. So using these other technologies. So are we going to see a 50-story mass timber building that's pure mass timber? I doubt it, right? But but if the upper stories are concrete hybrid mass timber, or if there's a tuned mass damper, if it has a kind of an exoskeleton structure and the whole structure is quite rigid, I think, yes, it's possible. And what is the economic, you know, building a building, building an asset, yeah. cross laminated timber versus traditional methods? How do they compare? And the reason I ask is that, you know, to, to some extent, it feels like what these carbon taxes and, and, and regulation is doing is yeah. forcing the real estate industry yeah. to internalize economic externalities in the form of carbon emissions that yeah. it never really had to, right? Historically, yeah. the, the building yeah. built in had carbon emissions, the person built the mm -hmm. building had massive externalities and it was never internalized. Yeah, yeah, Thrusting yeah. that back on the real estate industry, can you solve it if you don't account for yeah. 
carbon taxes. Is there any economic yeah. viability in its own right to cross-laminated timber? Yeah, that's a really good question. So very early in my career, I became interested in digital design. So using kind of computer and algorithmic design to automate things in architectural design. And why I like mass timber so much because it's, it's very light and it's it's easily prefabricated, unlike concrete, which, you know, if you prefabricate it, then you need to haul it. It's five times ha- heavier to the job site. You need big cranes. It's not so easy to prefabricate concrete or steel for that matter. So because of mass timber, because it's so light and it, because it's very easily cut with uh, CNC machines in factory conditions where you're not exposed to the weather, you can actually have significant time savings. So you can prefab different modules. So for instance, we're already seeing a lot of mass timber hotel design or residential design in which you know, individual models, uh, they get created in, in factories, sometimes in Eastern Europe, then shipped over here. And yeah, th- th- those time savings are also cost savings. So that's what I'm really most excited about is kind of that piece of, of mass timber. Now, there are other things that come to play. So when you're doing a tall building, mass timber is a little bit thicker than other floors or structural systems. So you lose some some space at the same time what's nice about mass timber it can be a finish if it's used as a as a flooring you don't need to have a false ceiling underneath it it can actually be the finish and it's a very beautiful finish there's research that shows that if we're looking at kind of natural finishes like wood we tend to be more productive and this this psychological restorative effect that researchers wrote about so there are other benefits that may increase employee productivity or reduce cost saving in in a in an overall kind of construction project, uh, and then maybe later on you get the benefits of potential reduced taxes or or something like that. I mean, as you know, the real estate industry is a tough industry. It's it's still brick and mortar to to a large extent, and we saw the bankruptcy of Katera, for instance, right, which was really a company that was meant to kind of mass produce mass timber and really scale it up. So I'm sure, you know, this is not an easy process, right? Take a long time, but I'm really very excited about mass timber. When you think about the the, the change on the economy, it's profound. I I, Mm -hmm. I read a stat that the real estate industry consumes roughly 40% of all the raw materials. I imagine that's a fairly inclusive definition of of real estate and commercial. But if you think about shifting that supply chain Mm -hmm. or a different material, and that's a fairly well-established, mature, sophisticated supply chain today, that yep. has massive economic effects. And I imagine that to some extent that favors industries or, 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 or countries that have access readily to mass timber at scale, yep. right? So yep. you can move it within a country. Is that mm-hmm. Are those some of the downstream dynamics that a, a transition to cross-laminated timber would actually affect, which is cost of building buildings gets dramatically cheaper in countries that have far lower yeah. ship costs and access to large amounts of timber? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's not only cheaper, when you're closer to the source, you also uh, save money, right, on, on transportation. So we're seeing that a lot of the innovation comes from the Pacific Northwest, not coincidentally, right? right? Places like Seattle, Portland, it is because of their incredible supply of mass timber. So so yeah, I think that's that's a good question. I think there's a huge advantage for developers working there, right? And, and, and they're using it not just because they want to be sustainable, but also because they see the economic of it work out in, in their favor. So uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really most excited. In terms of all the kind of bio-based materials, I think mass timber is probably the one that is most exciting for most architects. There's other materials too, <laughs> some of which I'm experimenting with, but they're just not there yet. So bamboo.
bamboo, for instance, is great for tropical climates, but you know, using it in the U.S. context, first of all, you would need to uh, harvest it uh, from far away, you know, ship it over in a container. Uh, and then there's some challenges with, with using bamboo because it's, it's not a standardized product, right? Every bamboo beam is different. So then you need to scan it in and, and, and make sure uh, it works out well. There is something called kind of cross-laminated bamboo, which is a more standardized product, which works well. Uh, mycelium, you've probably uh, heard about that too, which is kind of the, the roots underneath mushrooms. So it grows very quickly and it feeds off waste, but it's, it could be easily or not so easily, but the use for kind of inside walls for insulation, for instance. As a finish, it's uh, I haven't seen a lot of buildings yet that kind of apply that nicely. It has kind of this otherworldly aesthetic, but I've seen some product design of mycelium lamps and furniture pieces that actually look quite nice, almost like leather. So I think we're probably a little bit behind in the in the real estate industry that you know we haven't really seen a good mycelium product uh, yet. But uh, but yeah, there's uh, there's lots of uh, excitement around bio-based materials, um, and I really think that is a key to let's say uh, net zero carbon structures from an embodied carbon perspective. And I want to shift gears a little bit towards like urban design, and and I imagine yeah. in you know in your seat you you have a view on you know the the pandemic has changed a lot. Yeah. Right? changed a lot of autonomy it's changed a lot in our you know our, our our understanding of public health but i imagine it's changed urban design in some way and how much of the thinking or your thinking in particular has been influenced by yeah. this pandemic and, and what have been the effects of it yeah well that's a really big question thank you for asking and uh, it's really i mean being on top of i would say most architects mind or urban designers for ever since the pandemic you know the, the first thing i'd say is that a lot of good things have come out of crises. Actually, the discipline of urban planning came from a concern around, you know, cholera and cities and kind of this public health concern. And, you know, Central Park, for instance, right, in New York, which is a beautiful park, but it, it was built because people feared miasmas, as they call it, kind of the kind of the toxic air uh, and how that could potentially make people sick. So there's, if you look at architectural history, like there's some really great architecture movements that came out of crises too, like the, the Japanese metabolists kind of responded to post-war Tokyo, the challenges there. So, so I, I really see this as an as a opportunity for us to kind of rethink what's happening. So if I just speak about urban design, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword if you're looking at, at New York. So there's a lot of good things that happen. So the pedestrianization uh, of lots of uh, streets and kind of the conversion of parking lots around very pedestrian areas into restaurants, right, which may now become more permanent. So I think that's that's great, right? And it has increased people's ability to enjoy public space. And there was a real need because, you know, we're not allowed to dine inside. So we have to dine outside. But so I think that kind of accelerated a trend that was already happening in New York, which was pedestrianization of spaces, right? From Times Square to you name it. On the other hand, and, and by the way, this is not just unique to New York. We see this uh, across the world. And we also see, for instance, cities that rolled out many, many bike lanes because they realized that you know, people didn't want to take the bus. On the other hand, however, I mean, car culture is becoming more dominant, right? And if you look at, at the price of, of cars, it's, it's, you know, shut through the roof because people are no longer as comfortable taking the subway and at the same time they want to get out of the city because they're stuck in their apartments, right? So it's a little bit of a, of a double-edged sword, but I do think that it has accelerated a lot of good things uh, that urban designers like about cities. So attention to public space, you know, lots of outdoor activities, seating, um, you know, 
know, recreation. So I think by and large, you know, although the pandemic was terrible for, for New York urban design, it's, it may not have been a bad thing. I totally agree. And, and I was, I was actually just, you know, been here in New York this last week. And as I've been walking around, I noticed all these, you know, outdoor structures that now appear permanent. I actually don't know what mm -hmm. the regulation is as to whether they actually mm -hmm. become permanent, but it, it's like re-injected a, a, a vibrancy mm -hmm. to the streetscape that, you know, mm -hmm. it had been stripped of, right? The automobile and just cars mm -hmm. parked yeah. on the it kind of stripped it of a an energy kind of into yeah. this, you know people that are moving about the city and you have this kind of frenetic yeah. feel to it in the sense that there's restaurant there's diners and you're kind of walking almost through a restaurant mm -hmm. the other thing that's interesting is as i was thinking about it economics are actually fundamentally at play because you know mm -hmm. one of the things that the real estate industry had been coping with prior to covid is that retail rents no longer made sense right as retail sales declined rents didn't make sense but what we really did is just massively increase the denominator so the rent stays mm -hmm. the same for pretty much mm -hmm. any restaurant that's out there. Mm -hmm. But the square footage probably went up by a third to half, mm -hmm. to like 30 yeah. percent. And yeah. as it does, your effective rent drops yeah. by a third to 50%. Yeah. So what's, yeah. what's kind of interesting is like, it's almost like this natural reset where we just got to create a whole yeah. more commercial space. Yeah. And then so doing the yeah. economics that might have been underwater suddenly became yeah. viable again. So it's just an interesting, yeah. it's interesting to consider that that's probably a play too. I love how you think about that because, you know, parking, like let's say it's a street surface parking lots, right? It probably, they can probably charge $4 an hour, right? But if you have in that same space, let's say two tables, your profit will probably be much higher than that, right? And, and if you're looking at- Even if you looked at it because the city, right, is getting those, mm -hmm. those parking fees, the restaurant is getting, you know, the, those those covers from the restaurant. But I, I think yeah. even if you probably looked at it on a sales tax basis and mm -hmm. you were like, the, the aggregate sales taxes that come from reconstituting and repurposing that space from a yeah. restaurant for a 2,000-pound yeah. hunk of metal versus people eating things and, you know, high-market yeah. meals, that's totally different use case. And it's like the yeah. COVID kind of gave us an opportunity to reimagine that. You're absolutely right. You know, a couple of years ago, I gave a TED Talk on how to reimagine parking lots because of self-driving vehicles. Because, you know, the idea is when, when self-driving cars are there that, you know, most of us will be sharing cars. And so we don't really need as much parking anymore, right? Which is a huge opportunity. <laughs> but obviously the self-driving car, it just keeps getting delayed. We're not there yet, 10, 15 years, who knows? It may take even longer. But it's, it's funny that now <laughs> a crisis, a pandemic has really uh, led to this shift in which right. we can kind of reuse parking. Uh, so again, yeah, it's 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 looking at the bright side of this uh, kind of terrible thing that happened. But yeah, it's it's like a big reset, like you mentioned. And so you've obviously looked very closely at kind of how autonomous vehicles and the advent of, and I imagine you're talking about mass commercialization of autonomous yeah, vehicles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're being yeah. a ubiquitous thing. But once they are, posit that they are. How yeah. do you think that changes the streetscape of a city like New York? Yeah, no, I, I'm really very excited about that. I mean, if you look at the history of cars in cities. So about you know 100 years ago, the mass production of the T Ford really made it affordable for people to have cars. Uh, and little by little, our streets changed, right? Before we had streets, everything happened on the streets. We would walk, there would be horse carts, there would be people selling things. It, it wasn't just somewhere to, to go from A to B. It was actually more kind of a place to be. The car changed that. So streets became unsafe. 
uh, we implemented curbs and pedestrians were relegated to a small strip of that street. I think we can turn back the clock a little bit with self-driving cars. And the reason is that they're much safer to pedestrians uh, because they're not subject to human error. Now, now, obviously, they're not safe, quite safe yet, right? But if you're looking at how unsafe uh, real drivers are, I mean, per year, there's more than a million people that die as a result of traffic collisions, right? It, it is a, a massive killer. Uh, so once with self-driving uh, vehicles, you know, that safety will go up. At the same time, most of the cars will be electric. So there's less exhaust that people will breathe in. So most urban designers believe that this will lead to streets that are more pedestrian friendly. And there'll be more, as we call them, complete streets where, where pedestrians can coexist with cars. And one concept that may really become quite dominant for residential streets is what we call the shared streets in which you remove the curb and you have kind of one surface where everyone coexists. A little bit like the, like the meatpacking in, uh, in New York City, but in the Netherlands, there's lots of places like this in London and they're quite successful. Meaning uh, there's, no, it, there's no delineation between this is an area yeah. for cars, this is an area for people, and sometimes yeah. cross, but they cross under various yeah. rules like, you know, yeah. It's 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 a little bit hard. It's a counterintuitive concept because what you're doing by removing those delineations, you increase the perception of danger on behalf of the automobilists, and they will slow down and they will pay more attention to their surroundings. So you could only do this in residential neighborhoods, right? You wouldn't do this in kind of traffic corridors. But it's, I mean, many cities are doing this. Barcelona created what they call the super block. So they have kind of nine blocks. They have this perimeter of you know where regular traffic can go, and then within those nine blocks. It's shared streets, so it's only for destination traffic. So there's no curbs. But it's it's almost like a, a big plaza, and it works really well. They're very safe. Children can play on those types of streets. So so that's a technique that was pioneered about 70 years ago, and about one third of all Dutch neighborhoods are like that. So it's, it's quite normal in Europe. But I think with self-driving vehicles, you, know, you don't need to change the behavior of the automobilist, right? You can just program speeds for different blocks or different streets. So I think it would be much easier to implement. Like in the United States, where there's no culture of shared streets, for instance, where you know, you know there's road rage and, and many other things, it right. would be quite dangerous to have uh, shared streets, right? Unless maybe in some areas in, in downtown New York, right? Or San Francisco. But with self-driving vehicles, you can just, you know, flick a switch, right? And then you can mandate that. Is one of the other dynamics with self-driving vehicles is that, you know, because they don't require a human, they don't require downtime. Mm -hmm. They think about yeah. a self-driving car as being somewhat synonymous yeah. or, or coincident with people not owning cars, right? A decline yeah. in ownership. And, and I wonder in a city, you might know this staff, but impression it feels like high number. What is the amount of space, if you looked on the island of Manhattan, that yeah. is used for the storage of idle vehicles, right? So yeah. if you were to aggregate yeah. all the space and just look yeah. at the window, it's quite a lot, right? You could fit a yeah. couple of buildings in the number of cars that, that I can see. Yeah. If you're to strip that, yeah. the cars don't need to be idle. They can be perpetually operating. That reclaims an enormous portion of yeah. usable real estate or usable green space or usable yeah. just space, yeah. right, in, in, in an economy. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. So I've actually calculated that number for New York oh. City uh, based on public records. Uh, and this is not including the street parking. So it's only the off-street parking lots. Uh, and it's about 15 times Central Park. It's so 15 if you, Central Park. 15 Central Parks. Yeah. And I, I forget. Central Park-sized parking lots just distributed yeah. throughout. 
Uh, and if you would calculate that in the number of, you know, uh, housing units you could build is about 4 million. So wow. it's, it's, it's crazy, right? Uh, and that's New York City, which is a metro city. If you look at LA, for instance, so LA County has about the size of four San Francisco's. That's just parking. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's crazy. So that's a huge opportunity. So yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic helped reset that. I think, you know, self-driving vehicles, you know, over time, it'll probably take a long time, but it will also kind of reduce that amount of parking reclaim, and reinvigorate it. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine also it's it's like within, when you look within some of those spaces, a lot of it's also dead space as well. And I imagine that's true of major arteries, meaning mm -hmm. a large portion of where the kind of automobile infrastructure probably goes is space that really isn't useful in terms of moving you or transporting you, you know, giving yeah. you care from one place to another. It's like yeah. all the stuff in between, right? The parking space, getting into and out of your parking space, paying for your yeah. parking all yeah. that is space consumptive as well. Yeah, you're right. And there's actually one more thing to think about, which is not not very positive, but there is a, a danger in self-driving vehicles is that because they make it more convenient to travel, right? So the threshold of taking a self-driving car when you don't need to drive it, and if costs go down because there's no driver involved, um, you know, it, it may be for more people uh, more available. What that could mean is that cities could sprawl more outward. Right. You could live a little further if you can, you know, just work in the car or do some other things. You're not driving. Uh, so so there is this kind of risk inherent in them. Uh, so so some people fear that self-driving cars, you know, although they may, you know, allow for the reinvention of parking lots, they may actually increase traffic and, and increase sprawl. So, yeah, I mean, that's 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 a real threat, I think. And governments will probably need to step in and see, you know, how can they prevent that from happening? You know? Well, Stefan, would it be okay if I did kind of like a, a lightning round of, of questions, just kind of shorter questions where I'd love to just get your answers to like a few pithy thoughts? Sure. What makes you most excited when it comes to building more sustainable real estate assets over the next 10 years? So bio-based materials and cross-laminated timber. I think that is really the holy grail for now. But 10 years from now, there'll probably be a different one. But I think this is a huge opportunity right now. What do we do to help the real estate industry recognize its responsibility to build more sustainable assets, not just because of the cost imperative, but because of the social imperative and the ecological imperative? So there's voluntary systems, right? So lead, wellness. But I think at the end of the day, you need regulation. Not too much. You know, you don't want too much to hinder the, the real estate industry, but at least you need to make sure that there's no bad buildings anymore, right? So we need to raise the bar for um, regulating operational carbon and maybe in the future embodied carbon as well. As someone that looks at urban design pretty extensively and mm -hmm. both being in New York, what's the one thing New York could do to dramatically improve quality of life for residents in Manhattan right now? That's a great question. New York is already doing a lot right. So there's there's bike lanes, there's there's parks. I mean, it's, it's just such a great city. I, I would say the one thing that it could probably do better is maybe even go a little bit further with the pedestrianization in, in certain areas that are very dense in terms of pedestrians. 
So just continue what they're already doing. You know, the other thing is probably the affordability, kind of housing affordability. How, how do you solve that? But that's beyond the scope of urban design. Right. But from an urban designer perspective, I, I would like to see more walkability. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I, I really enjoyed this conversation about, you know, both sustainable building design, but also urban design and urban policy and some of the, the dynamics around autonomous vehicles and what they ultimately will mean for cities. It was just fascinating. So thanks for taking the time to share it with me. Uh, thank you, Brendan. Really appreciate it and enjoyed our conversation. And I hope, you, hope to meet you in New York City one day. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www dot fifthwall dot com.